This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been a waiting game for weeks, but the word is the waiting is coming to an end and the campaign for the next federal election will get underway in earnest on Sunday. So what do we know about the timeline at this point? Let's find out what's going on in Ottawa. Abigail Beeman joins us now, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Now, is there just a kind of heightened state of waiting and awareness going on right now in Ottawa? Well, I've had an almost packed suitcase for about a week now. So yes, heightened state of awareness would probably be putting it mildly. But I, I, we're, we're saying now, I guess, that it's unofficially official that we're, we're looking at Sunday for the date that the Prime Minister is expected to go to Rideau Hall, meet with the new Governor General uh, and ask for an election to be called. We are hearing that that election date will be September 20th, which would put it at the shortest possible window of 36 days for an election campaign. So looking like like a late September uh, election with the Prime Minister going to Rideau Hall this Sunday. Right. Now, we had been you know hearing about this for weeks, but Abigail, has there been any concern expressed behind the scenes in recent days because of the rising number of COVID-19 cases across the country? Like, aren't they worried about backlash? Yes, absolutely. That's a, a great question. Uh, and, you know, we heard Dr. Teresa Tam say that we are now in a fourth wave. Of course, there are many people concerned about the timing of this election. I, if some who just, you know, think that it, it won't be politically popular to, to go to the polls when cases are climbing. Uh, you know, the, the liberals will for sure want to campaign on their pandemic, uh, history, how they've handled, uh, the, the, pand- the pandemic in terms of, of financial support and other measures, their vaccine record. They, w- they will want to tout that to Canadians and, and posit themselves as the best party going forward with this experience to bring Canadians out of the pandemic. But that message changes a little if they are, you know, campaigning in places where, where cases are, are climbing and there's, and there's concerns uh, about the current level of COVID-19 in communities. So that's certainly a factor, uh, something that's at play. And, and you can be sure something that many discussions uh, were held over. I'll bet. So- So that's the case. And why now? What brings us to this particular point? Like, why have this election? That is, you know, the first question that the prime minister will get when there's an opportunity <laughs> to to put questions to him after one has been called. We, we've seen sort of the, the hints, the writing on the wall for a while now since the prime minister and the liberals uh, in general started slamming the opposition for blocking legislation, uh, which the, the claims that the opposition uh, pushed back on. Uh, but but it just sort of started to ramp up that they feel uh, that, 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 you know, what what's at the heart of all of this is that the liberals want a majority. 
They want to be able to make decisions, get things done, you know, without the pesky opposition getting in the way. Uh, and right now they, they are in this minority situation. So the only benefit to them to go to an election is if they think that they can actually win a majority and pass what they want to pass, uh, and, and move forward as the majority ruling party, uh, in, in the House of Commons. So it, it's a, it's a gamble and, and, and they're hoping that it will pay off, but the polling is suggesting that they will be a tough road for them to get that majority. And, you know, Canadians frustrated about an election or who don't think that now is the right time are, are surely going to be frustrated if we end up back in the same spot, having no spent a lot of time and money you know, no to get kidding. there. Uh, yeah, let's talk a bit about that. What do we know about polling right now? Because from the ones that I've seen, some of them show the Liberals with a lead, some of them show it tighter than that. That's true, and it seems to change uh, every day, and depending on which poll that you look at, I, I think what we can say consistently is that the Liberals are in the lead, but that, but by how much they're in the lead, uh, it, it depends on depends on the day, and depends on the poll, and depends on the type of questions asked, and so on and so on, and obviously a campaign can change a lot of things, and things mm-hmm. can happen uh, over the course of the campaign that none of us can can predict. Uh, so, so you know, we'll have to see if they if they if they broaden that lead, if they hold a consistent lead, if, if it's evident that, that a majority is within uh, easy reach for them or not, it will be interesting to, to watch play out and, and to see what the opposition parties do uh, to try and, and, and broaden their territory as well. Yeah, let's talk about those opposition parties here for a second. Are they ready for this? What is their take on it? They, the opposition parties have been saying in, in to various degrees and in various words that this is not the right time for an election. You know, some going as far as saying it's irresponsible to hold an election. But of course, uh, they all, uh, they all in various ways are making their own plans. I had, uh, one NDP strategist say to me yesterday, you know, just because you don't want to go to war doesn't mean that you, that you shouldn't take a shield <laughs> to protect right. yourself in, in, in the first place and, and make plans. So they all have to do this. They have to get ready. Uh, they, they, they still want to win if an election is called, obviously. Uh, so we're seeing all the federal leaders uh, out across the country making various announcements, meeting people. It's all starting to look a bit different just in terms of the COVID lens than any mm-hmm. election that we've seen before. And we can talk about that too. But we are starting to get a sense of, you know, the policies and the ideas putting out there. The NDP dropped a 115-page action plan yesterday, which they're saying is not their platform, or not their campaign <laughs> platform, but but really will form will inform their campaign platform. Right. And, and much of that is, is promises that we've seen from them uh, before over and over again. Things like National Pharmacare, uh, forgiving student debt, affordable housing. So for the NDP, it's, it's about showing, you know, you didn't choose us last time around. In fact, you relegated us to fourth party status. But this is our plan. And now coming out of the pandemic, this is the plan that you that you want to take. Uh, from For the Conservatives, we've seen Aaron O'Toole out across the country as well, making a variety of announcements um, about jobs, recovery, he has a plan for rural Canada for innovation. I think with the Conservatives, likely similar for, for all parties, but they're going to focus on the idea that they are the right party to uh, bring Canada out of this uh, out of this pandemic and to and to bring a recovery plan uh, that's responsible and uh, and will help Canada moving forward. The challenge for all parties with campaigning on that idea is how do you posit the idea that, that it's time to talk about recovery if 
communities face rising COVID cases yeah. or concern that, you know, we're still in the thick of it. And that is sort of the, the wild card uh, that, that, that may change the dynamics of the campaign going forward. And finally, for the Liberals, you know, we haven't obviously seen a, a, an official campaign platform, but you can just look at the announcements they've made over the past few oh, weeks, yeah. really focused on their child care plan, this $10 a day child care, getting more provinces to sign on. You can expect to focus on that. And obviously, at the heart of this will be the Liberals telling Canadians, look at all of the things we accomplished during the pandemic. Look at our uh, plan for recovery. Look at all of the, you know, financial measures that we put in place to help Canadians. Look at our vaccine rollout. Uh, for better or for worse, they will be touting that those records uh, as as and the idea that that you know th- that they are the party that uh, Canadians have relied on and need to rely on going forward to come out of this. All right, Abigail, you're going to be busy, and we're going to be hearing from you. So thanks very much for your <laughs> yes, time. Absolutely, that's Abigail Beeman, Global National Ottawa correspondent, talking about the anticipated. A federal election campaign call coming on Sunday. And of course, we'll have complete coverage for you. But we're also asking you this morning about that. So with this election looming, what is the issue that you are most concerned about? The thing, the one thing that you really want to hear from these politicians during this campaign, what do you want that topic to be about? Tell me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about a little travel, shall we? Because if you thought BC Day Long Weekend was a busy one for the ferries, just wait. This weekend, starting today, expected to be one of the busiest, so prepare yourselves. To help out with that, we're joined now by Deborah Marshall, Executive Director of Public Affairs for BC Ferries. Deborah, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. What makes this particular weekend so busy? Well, we always find that the middle weekend in August uh, does tend to be quite busy because a lot of families take vacation the first two weeks of August or the last two weeks of August. So everybody is traveling this weekend, whether you're coming home or you're heading out on your vacation. Right. Okay. So are you seeing that already with reservations? Yes, we are. We did see quite a bit of traffic traveling yesterday. Um, the uh, reservations at the peak sailing times have been fully subscribed already for today, as well as Saturday morning. And uh, we do expect to be quite busy Sunday returning from Vancouver Island, as well as uh, Langdale over on the Sunshine Coast. Okay, so do you have any advice for people then who are thinking about taking the ferries this weekend? Well, if you're traveling without a reservation, I would avoid traveling today if you're traveling in a vehicle. Uh, Saturday afternoon would be a better time to travel. Uh, You can always travel as a foot passenger as well. If you can get somebody to drop you off at the terminals uh, and have somebody pick you up, and uh, that, that's always a good option for customers if you if you want to travel on Friday. So is it fair to say, Deborah, that at this point it looks like BC Ferries has recovered from that slowdown in traffic during the pandemic? Well, we're almost back at pre-pandemic levels. Uh, you know, we're looking at our traffic compared to 2019. Uh, definitely, we've seen some uh, pent-up demand for travel. And I think, you know, with the fires in the Okanagan and people not wanting to, uh, you know, or can't travel to the U.S., lots of people are having stay vacations, at, uh, in, you know, within British Columbia this summer. So we're definitely seeing lots of traffic this summer. Right. How has that impacted then how you plan for that? Have you had to add extra sailings as you're ramping things up? 
Yes, we definitely plan to ramp up and uh, we're basically back to our summer schedule that we would have had in, say, 2019, pre-pandemic levels. We've got all of our major vessels running, lots of extra sailings. But, uh, you know, when you do get a weekend like this, there's, uh, there's only so much capacity in the system and we do expect overloads this weekend. Okay, so people should know about that. Did I also read that you're looking to hire more people too? But that's a sure sign, I would think, that things are getting back to normal. Yes, we're definitely looking for uh, for more uh, employees and whatnot. Uh, I would suggest anybody wanting to apply for a job, uh, do check out our uh, career page on our website. Uh, there's, uh, you know, certainly a demand for, for more staff. And what we're finding, too, is, you know, we, we do have an aging workforce. Uh, so lots of people are retiring, and uh, that's opening up more positions throughout the fleet. So it sounds like BC Ferries is just like every other business out there these days and trying to attract workers. Exactly. Yeah, we're definitely trying to attract workers. And, uh, you know, anybody who's looking for a career in the marine industry, please consider BC Ferries. All right. There you go. You covered it all. Deborah, thank you so much. Thank you. Deborah Marshall, Executive Director of Public Affairs for BC Ferries, talking about how busy it's going to be this weekend. So some of their advice for dealing with it, well, book in advance. Uh, good luck with that, though, because some of, the, of course, the prime spots are all gone already. And be prepared for sailing weights. And she said, don't even try today because it's going to be so busy today. But travel as a foot passenger is another really good way to do this. If you can leave the car at home, get dropped off, picked up, whatever the case may be, uh, they said, you know, foot passengers can even now make bookings on the Metro Vancouver, Vancouver Island routes. Uh, Also arrive early and keep hydrated. Also excellent advice because today is going to be another scorcher out there. So yeah, watch out if you're heading to BC Ferries. It sounds like they are ramping back up and their schedule is, she said, very close to what they were doing back in 2019. This is Mornings with Simi. So new rules for those who work in long-term care and assisted living. You will now have to be vaccinated by October the 12th, and it's going to be a condition of employment. Even Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday acknowledged this is a change of direction for our approach to this. But this comes as BC has reported 516 cases of the COVID-19 virus, and 72% of all the eligible people in the province have been fully vaccinated. We still have a ways to go. So to find out why these steps became necessary, we're joined now by Adrian Dix, BC's Health Minister. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. So why did this need to be done? What were you seeing in the numbers? Uh, I think we see a number of things. Obviously, the the cases have gone up in recent times. There is a a significant increase, although not as much with respect to hospitalizations. We've seen some long-term care outbreaks. In general, they're much more controlled than they were before because essentially all of the residents are vaccinated and the vast majority of the staff. But we feel as we enter especially into the fall when other respiratory illnesses will come into play, uh, influenza and others, that it's important that we're 100% vaccinated in long-term care and assisted living. And um, that was the decision that Dr. Henry took. It's just it's clear action. Uh, October 12th, everyone will be, have to be vaccinated. And I think, uh, I think that's the right approach. Why not right away? Why October 12th? Because it takes some time to vaccinate. As you know, we need people to be fully vaccinated. Right? So that means two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, you can get your second dose within 28 days. So that allows us to move and get everyone vaccinated. In the interim period, those who aren't vaccinated uh, will be required to go through testing and have additional PPE requirements, uh, uh, masking and so on. So 
I think those steps are being taken in the interim to make sure people are safe, but we want to get every, everyone done by October 12th. Do we know why some of these workers were not getting vaccinated? I think everyone's been offered a vaccine. And as you recall, the first people to be vaccinated were residents in long-term care and workers in long-term care. And the effect was almost immediate. We went from, uh, on January 15th, 49 outbreaks in long-term care and assisted living to virtually none within a month. So the impact of the vaccination was immediate. I think um, in the initial stages in December and January and February, that was when these vaccines just came into being. So those were the first people to receive the vaccine. So there may have been some people who are reluctant, but that's not really an argument now. Uh, around the world, hundreds of millions of people have received these vaccines safely. They're some of the most effective and safe vaccines we've ever had, and we need to proceed. But the the fact is that the vast majority of people in long-term care received the vaccine not a little while ago, but quite a while ago. And the impact, of course, on the quality of life in long-term care has been seen. We now have visits in long-term care that are uh, largely unfettered, and we have a renewal of activity in long-term care. But, you know, uh, the, the fall represents the unknown as well, and so I think it's important to act to make sure people are as protected as possible. Right. This is unlike any other sector uh, in, in any other workplace in the sense of the vulnerability of people living under those circumstances and congregate circumstances, and that's why this action obviously uh, needed to be taken, and it was. Right. Given the uniqueness then of this sector, as you just pointed out, were we too easy on the workers then? We were hoping for the best, that they would do the right thing, and they didn't. Should we have cracked down earlier then? Overwhelmingly, they did. And too easy on the sector? I I just would say this, that people in long-term care, and we have taken important steps to improve uh, pay for a great great number of people in long-term care to support them. But people who are working in long-term care and living in long-term care have been through the most challenging time in the pandemic, right, in every way with respect to outbreaks and the consequences. So I don't think anyone's being easy, but we need to, uh, we need to take steps now, I think, to ensure that we're 100% vaccinated going into the fall. That, that's, that's the action that's required. In the meantime, other actions are being taken to ensure people are protected in long-term care. And I think, um, I think we're making progress in general, as you've noted, in terms of vaccination. But we've got to, we've got to continue to push. Having the best record in, uh, in one of the best records in the world isn't enough. We have to do better than that. So one of the other things Dr. Henry said yesterday was that she supports the idea that businesses should be able to hire and fire staff based on, you know, their vaccination status. Is that something you support? Well, I think you have to make sure, I think businesses and all of us have to make sure that people are safe. So uh, Dr. Henry was saying that people do have the right to ensure that their workplaces are safe, not just for uh, people coming into those workplaces, uh, customers or whoever, but also for other staff. So uh, businesses do have the right to take action to ensure people are safe, and, and that's reasonable action as well. We have to make sure that the action is proportionate, and uh, and that's what we're trying to do across the board. There is a tendency in these times. I mean, the circumstance we face now, Simi, is that we're seeing uh, more cases, and uh, those cases are largely amongst the unvaccinated. But I really want to encourage everybody uh, and what we've tried to be from the beginning to continue to be positive. We have high vaccination rates. They're getting higher. And there is a des- tendency in these times for us to look at us, the vaccinated, and them, the not vaccinated. And I think what we have to do is just continue to reduce the number of non-vaccinated people, and we'll all be safer, including, by the way, 
those who are opposed to vaccination. Are you concerned at all about the upcoming school year? I know I've been hearing a lot from parents and teachers about that. Um, they, they want the ability to maybe be more flexible in terms of putting in some regulations. Well, that's happening. That work is happening and has been happening all summer and is happening right now. And you'll expect to hear the direction, the, both the advice and the rules that we're hoping to see province-wide by the end of next week, both in K-12, but also in post-secondary education. And uh, there, there are some similarities there, and there are some differences. We have quite a few people who live, live in congregate settings in uh, universities, and so uh, there may be some uh, slightly different rules for the two circumstances. But uh, that work is being done now with all the partners of education, and action will be taken as well to ensure, one, kids get to go to school, and that's a real achievement of everybody in B.C., and two, that they do so safely. All right, more to come on that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Hey, anytime. Take care, Simi. You too. That's Adrian Dix, BC's health minister, talking about the new rules for long-term care workers, but also, as he just said there at the end, uh, that means new rules also coming or the ability or whatever the regulations are going to be around the school system, whether it's K-12 to or post-secondary. And post-secondary institutions such as UBC, they've been waiting for this. We've heard faculty at UBC asking for some guidance on this, and it sounds like we will get those answers next week. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You may have noticed that the real estate market is going through some changes. There's some houses, some places that go on the market and they're just, you know, snapped up right away. Others seem to sit there for weeks and longer and supply still remains low, but prices are holding steady. Seems like a lot of contradictions, right? So what is going on? Well, to talk more about this, Dane Idle joins us now, founder and lean analyst at Idle Insights. Good morning, Dane with you. Now, what is going on with this market right now? Because it does seem like it's all over the map. Yeah. So basically what's transpired here over the last several months, uh, well, we'll go back a little bit further. So over the last 12 months from July, 2020 until June of 2021, the average detached price has increased 24%. So it's been on a torrid uptrend. As we alluded to in our market release last month, it was going to be a timely end for the uptrend. And subsequently this past month of July, the average sale price did drop 67000 So from our peak of $1,982,000, now we're down to $1,915,000. And as you alluded to in the, the prep here, um, the, the inventory is still tremendously low. So we're actually at uh, the inventory for July was 4,355 4, active listings. Now that's up massively from where we started the year. In January, we were at 3,000 active listings, so we're up 45% from that point, and we're down 13% from our yearly high, which was in May of this year when there was roughly 5,000 active listings. For the month of July, it's actually the worst inventory month preceding 16 years. So the inventory is still very, very low, but the sales have fallen off dramatically as well. 
And during March, there was actually closer to 2,000 detached sales in that given month. This last month of July, we were down to 1,000. So like you say, the market is very likely coming to uh, an end of this torrid uptrend. And we'll probably start to see a little bit of a sideways action for the upcoming months and likely a year as well. That's a huge adjustment, though, Dane, for sellers, right? Because I think a lot of them have become used to this idea that I'm going to put my property on the market, I'm going to get multiple offers. And the thing is, they have to readjust their expectations. Absolutely. And what's interesting, you correctly point out, um, you know, previously, if it didn't sell in the first week, something was drastically wrong. And likely a lot of them did sell in that first week. So we're starting to see some sellers start to panic if it's on the market for two weeks, where historically the average sale price or average days on market was right around 30 to 40. We had been as low as 13 and 14 days on market, which was just wow. not, um, not, it was not sustainable. So now we're starting to see a little bit of a market lull come in. Right. But again, if we, if we can't match the expectations of buyers and sellers, then th- does the market kind of go sideways? Do we end up in this adjustment period? Yes, I believe so. So again, after such a, a, an uptrend, it's unsustainable. So likely what's going to happen here is there will be a, a, a slight pullback. I'm not anticipating a major correction like what we experienced from the 2017 highs uh, when the market did correct 20%. This time we're expecting between an 8 and a 13% correction. So an 8% correction brings the prices back down to the previous market peak of 2017, right at 1830000 And the outside uh, projection for the correction is 1725000 where the, the market has tested a number of times, and that will likely be the threshold that will finalize this market bottom in the upcoming year. All right. So what, what would you tell people who are looking to get into the market then? It really does depend um, on where they're looking to get into the market. So the secondary or kind of outlying markets have been the major winners. So there has been this great rotation of areas. So kind of West Vancouver's, the Vancouver West, the Richmond markets, the Burnaby markets have not done as well here over this last 12 months. The areas that have done exceedingly well are Maple Ridge, Squamish, Sunshine Coast. Those areas were all up closer to 30% from their June or July of 2020 marks. Those areas are starting to pull back. So Maple Ridge high was 1,271,000 and now we're back down to 1,180,000. So roughly, you know, $100,000 dropped off of the Maple Ridge market. And I would anticipate a, a return to more of a normalized market where the historical market leaders will return to be that and the laggers will likely lag. All right, we'll see what happens. Dane, thanks so much. No problem, Timmy. Thank you so much for your time. That's Dane Idle, founder and lead analyst at real estate uh, analyst firm Idle Insights. Talking about the market right now, it's not cooling down so much as it is moving sideways, as Dane points out. Uh, We're in an adjustment period, and if you're thinking about selling your place, don't necessarily count on getting those multiple offers that, you know, a year ago were very much the case. This is Mornings with Simi. Rising COVID cases, mandatory vaccinations for long-term care workers, businesses that may be considering now how to deal with vaccinated or unvaccinated staff. I mean, there's a lot to talk about on the COVID-19 front. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What did you think of the government's announcement yesterday then for long-term care workers, mandatory vaccinations as of October 12th? We live in a world of COVID and we will live in a world of COVID for the foreseeable future. 
It is not going away. We need to get used to it. In this context, I think that the announcement is fair, it's balanced, and it's meant to answer the imperatives of public health and protect the residents of long-term care facilities and, in fact, the entire population of British Columbia. Do you think that it should have been done sooner, though? I mean, if we knew that there were workers who weren't getting vaccinated, how did we think this wasn't going to end up being a problem? Well, we're trying to roll out vaccines right now, and we're doing an incredible job in general. Our goal was to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible, and we will have, within the next couple of weeks, 80% of the population of British Columbia double vaccinated. That's a tremendous accomplishment. I think that as we do that, issues such as the one that was dealt with yesterday have to be dealt with specifically. Could we have done it a bit sooner? Possibly. But I think this is a very timely intervention. I think what happened in the Okanagan is that we just forgot there was COVID. And we see the consequences of doing that. And the regulations that were announced yesterday really are meant to address the fact that we live in a world of COVID and we're going to have to deal with it. Is this something that you think, if you run a business, if you're a manager right now, you should be thinking about this? Well, the Vancouver Canucks are. It looks as if you may need to prove your vaccination status. You have to be fully vaccinated to attend a Canucks game. So I think across the entire spectrum, from the entertainment industry, long-term care facilities, and everyone else, each business is going to look at what it can do to protect its workers, to protect its business. It will be very bad for business in any setting if a location or a particular type of institution is identified as promoting the spread of COVID. So I think, yeah, I suspect this will be happening on a much broader scale as we move forward into the fall. So that, it sounds like then that was very significant what Dr. Henry said yesterday, that if she said if she supports the right of businesses to do that, will more businesses, do you think, now take her up on that? Oh, I'm sure they will. And they're all thinking about it as to how it's going to be a balance between uh, the, the health of the public the health of their business, and individual rights and concerns. Look, no one is going to force a person to be vaccinated or to disclose their vaccination status. That being said, there will likely be consequences to being unvaccinated or to not disclose. There are certain activities you won't be able to do, certain jobs you won't be able to do. And I think that as we move forward together in a world of COVID, probably for a couple of years to come, if not more, this will be the reality. You will need to think about vaccination. And if you choose not to be vaccinated, what that means for you, your work, your life, your family, and address that as a specific issue going forward. I wonder, Dr. Conway, if we need to kind of rebrand that conversation, then if we rebrand it and say, this is good for business. And if you want things to stay open and you want the economy to chug along, this is the way we do it. That is a very good way of putting it to my mind. I think my biggest concern, if on Labor Day, Dr. Henry, Minister Dix and others announce a further phase of reopening, that people will misinterpret this as the end of COVID. It will be the end of the beginning and us moving forward from a pandemic COVID world to an endemic COVID world. COVID will be around. We will be able to do so many more things than we did a year ago all the while remembering that there is still a risk of COVID transmitting. There will not be a day of zero cases. So let's just learn to live with it. And we can make it pleasant, workable, and feasible in the long term.
Where do you think we're at right now then? Like with the number of cases, 516 yesterday, it's just such an alarmingly fast climb of those numbers, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it reflects the fact that we aren't fully reopened. I think that in many places, particularly in Kelowna, and this is not to blame anyone, this is just an observation, that people misinterpreted the reopening as a full reopening. We know that being together with large numbers of people indoors, without masks, without knowing their vaccination status, and with people we haven't seen for a while, that's still risky, and it will be risky for the foreseeable future. So we can't do that, but there's so many other things that we can do, and I think we'll need to to think that through going forward. So it's a cautionary tale rather than really uh, a disaster in my mind. So September 7th was is supposed to be the day we enter kind of the final phase. If it were up to you, would you put that off right now? I think we'll need to see if we can control these outbreaks, if we can understand where all the cases are coming from, and if we can reassure ourselves that by announcing more reopening, it won't immediately lead to a significant increase in the number of cases. So it depends on the cases, and it also depends on all of us to fully understand that although there may be more reopening, COVID is still out there. And what about the school year? Are you concerned about that? Not at all. No? I think schools were the safest place last year, even at the peak of the pandemic. We knew who was going in. We knew who was leaving. We found cases. And school-based outbreaks were exceedingly rare. On the other hand, the damage we did to our children, our teenagers, in terms of social skills, mental health, physical health, was so significant that we need them back in school to recover that, and I think we can do so safely. So should we be talking about, though, giving them the option of mask mandates? or Because clearly there is some concern there. I think we have individual mandates, and that will be what's going forward. First, everyone who is eligible to be vaccinated should think long and hard about getting vaccinated as our first line of protection. We know that activities in large groups indoors for an extended period of time are somewhat risky. So I think the individual mandate that I would give everyone, including people in the school environment, is to recognize those risky situations and to react to them in a way that's practical. That may be uh, shortening the time of contact. It may be trying to keep social distance. And it may include masks, but I think it really is evolving towards this individual mandate that I think will serve us well. And so how would you say BC is doing right now? We're doing amazingly well. We forgot there was COVID, and we need to remember that. We need to understand how to live in a world of COVID. I'm very hopeful for the future, and I think we can do well. Let's all get vaccinated, and let's all be as safe as possible indoors. And I think we may be able to move forward very productively. Oh, we hope so. Dr. Conway, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Dr. Brian Conway is the Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre talking about our approach to COVID. Uh, We do have some work to do. I do feel like businesses are going to play such a huge role moving forward to let everybody know that you want them to stay in business. You want that economy to move forward. You want things to stay open. Well, the way to do that is to, you know, prevent COVID-19 from getting in there by getting vaccinated. Interesting to note what he was saying about the Vancouver Canucks. So it is under consideration by the Canucks right now to do what the Winnipeg Jets have already said publicly they are going to do, and that is require proof of COVID-19 vaccination from both staff and ticket holders in order to get into the building to watch a Winnipeg Jets game. 
Would not surprise me at all to see the Vancouver Canucks do the same thing. You want stands, you want people in stands, and you want that to be safe. You don't want to have any kind of super spreader event linked, right, to your games and your building. This is the way to do that. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, if ever there was a week for us to see the full impact of that UN report on climate change, this would be it, right? We've got extreme heat happening for the third time this summer. That's unprecedented. We've got wildfires. We've got air quality issues. Now, depending on where you are in the, you know, on the South Coast here, some areas will be worse than others. If you're in the kind of Vancouver, Surrey area, Richmond, it's okay. But if you head out to the eastern part of the Fraser Valley, it is terrible. It's 8.30 in the morning and already right now at the far end of the uh, Fraser Valley, air quality is a 10 plus there for, on the hazard map. And any that is very high and that is incredibly problematic. And we're not even into the day yet. So you can see the impacts out there. What can we do though about dealing with climate change? This must be a frustrating time for climate scientists who have been talking about this for so long. Well, joining us now is Dr. Simon Donner, climate scientist and professor at UBC. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. When this report came out this week, did you feel like, I think we've been saying this for years now, are people going to finally start paying attention? Well, (laughs) you know, I'm sure a a lot of people sort of have that reaction. One thing I'll say that is important about this report is, you know, the whole goal of the IPCC is to basically assess what's known about climate, about climate change, right? So look at, read everything that's been published, look at all of the data, gather all the evidence together, and try to give an objective summary for governments. And it's governments that ask for these reports, and which may not be obvious from the outside, but what's really incredible about this particular report is how much more certain the conclusions are. And that just because we have so much more data and so much more evidence now, I mean, I think, you know, everybody here in BC is seeing the evidence ourselves um, out there this summer. We're feeling it. So that, yeah. And so that the statements in the report that used to use language like, oh, it's more likely than not, or it's quite likely now say it's unequivocal that climate change is caused by human activity. And, you know, those are just, those may just sound like just words, but they reflect an incredible amount of data and knowledge right. that's gone in, it gone into the conclusion. So then, Dr. Donner, what are the next steps here? Like for you and your work, if this word, if work is now so definitive, where do we go from here? So it's a really good, that's a really good question. So what's interesting is this report is actually just the beginning of a three-part assessment. And so the uh, first report is on the science of climate change. And the um, next report that's coming out in February, and I'm an author on, on, on that one, looks at the impacts of climate change on society and on the environment and, and what people can do to adapt, as well as the limits of, of adaptation. Uh, and then a third report, so that comes out next February, and a third report comes out a couple months after that, and it is all about what can be done to reduce emissions. And so I think for people who are wondering after this, hearing the news of this report, what are we supposed to do? I said, well, the IPCC is coming out with more conclusions. <laughs> so, so you know, hang tight at least for that. Right. I know. I think that's the frustrating part about this, right? This report got so much attention this week, people really paying attention. And I think it did hit because of all the effects that we're feeling. And now we have to wait to find out what we can do about it. Well, you know, there. I, I think a lot of the conclusions you're going to see out of the next two reports are not too surprising. I mean, what's obvious right now is that we need to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions if we want to avoid the levels of warming that that world's governments, including Canada, you know, agreed we would try to avoid in the Paris Climate Agreement. It's going to require major shifts in how we generate energy, 
how we move ourselves around and how we heat and cool our buildings. But but a lot of those things are technologies we already have today. So, for example, it seems pretty clear at this point that the future of passenger vehicles is electricity. And, you know, BC, 10% of the vehicles sold last year in BC were electric. And that number is, according to BC Hydro polling data, is expected to go up quite a lot in the next few years. So, I mean, some of these transitions, I think, are already underway. But what about other areas? Like, yes, BC is on it, right? You could say that parts of Canada definitely on it. But what about other countries? Well, that's, that's a great question. And, and um, you know, we're going to, it'll be very interesting to see how, given extreme weather across North, across the Northern Hemisphere this summer, it wasn't just here in Canada, you know, extreme events in Tokyo, in, in Japan, in China, in Western Europe, uh, in, in, um, in Eastern Europe as well. Uh, put those together with the increasing evidence from the IPCC. It'll be very curious to see what the tone is like at the UN climate meeting that's going to be held in um, uh, in November, which is the which is the, the sort of the political discussion between all the different countries about what we should expect to do. I think you're going to see a lot more urgency than we are used to from those meetings. Do you, it must be hard for you though, too, in your position, Dr. Donner, because sometimes, you know, in human nature, we have a tendency to tune out doom and gloom, right? We don't want to hear it, but now it's becoming inevitable that we have to listen to it. Well, you know, and I'd say one, one shame of the, I, and I'm a part of the IPCC process, but one shame about it is that because the people working on the next reports require this one to be done to finish their work, they come out staggered so that we give the solutions after we warn about the problem. Whereas, you know, the truth, the truth of climate change is, yes, this is something to be scared by. But most of the solutions we're talking about are good ideas anyway, right? And so, you know, if you think about what, you know, the, if, if Canada is successful at really dramatically reducing emissions and getting towards what we call net zero by 2050, which is in legislation now, if, if we're successful at doing that, you know, our cities are going to be quieter. They're going to be cleaner. And it's all because, you know, when you're using electric vehicles, when you're using electricity to um, heat and cool your homes, you're not producing as much air pollution, right? Like what we're we're seeing a little bit today. Granted, what we're seeing today is mostly from wildfire smoke. Um, You're not seeing as much air pollution. Electric cars don't make much noise. You know, we're talking about a sort of a healthier and cleaner world. And so most of these solutions are good ideas anyways. And so I, I do wish when people talked about climate change, they didn't always lead with, the disasters that may come, but they talk, would also talk about the benefits of the actions we could take. You make, you sound so positive and you're, you're absolutely right. You make an excellent point because we've done this before, right? We have tackled problems like this before, whether it was acid rain or even putting um, emissions targets into place for vehicles. That was so controversial in the seventies, but it was done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, I mean, listen, no doubt climate change is one of the, the, biggest and hardest challenges of the century. And it's because it is really like the world's biggest collective action problem. We're all contributing to it and and our emissions are going to affect the climate for a long time in the future, which means that decisions we make now affect not just us, but affect future generations. So it's a, it is a really hard problem. But, you know, and sometimes people think, oh, we can never solve a problem like this. We can't deal with collective action. But if you think about it, pretty much anything we build in the world requires collective action. Like, how would we have roads or bridges unless everybody showed up to work? You know, and so I do think that this is quite possible. Um, what what scares me, I'll say, though, is that um, the the window to turn the ship around fast enough to avoid the temperature targets in the Paris Climate Agreement, that's that's pretty tight. And that might be hard for us to do. How tight is that? 
Well, really, we're looking at extremely sharp emissions reductions over the next over the next you know twenty years, and particularly to avoid one and a half degrees of warming. The scenarios that the IPCC put out effectively effectively were saying that we might not be able to avoid ever reaching one and a half degrees of warming, but what we maybe could do is surpass that, and then if we develop enough technologies to pull carbon dioxide out of the air, we could sort of overshoot one and a half degrees and then come back below it later on. But it's a long shot that that would work. Right. So you're saying essentially we need a plan B. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that, to take home from that is that um, those targets are important. There's a reason they're there. They're a mix of science and politics that inform them. But in the end, the real message of all the science and the message of this report is that, you know, the more we reduce emissions, the less the planet warms and the less people are going to suffer. And so we should try our best to aim for those targets. But if we miss them, that doesn't mean you give up. You still try to cut emissions as much as you can. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about that this morning. Well, thanks so much for the discussion. Yeah, that's Dr. Simon Donner, climate scientist and professor at UBC. Just such a great realistic perspective on this, too, about we have to do what we can. And if we can't reach that, then we've got to develop a backup plan. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at right now. This report this week from the United Nations about you know climate change and it's happening. Uh, can't wait to read the next couple of reports, too, especially the solutions-oriented one.